So last we left, we left with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, for those of you who haven't been with us, we've been uh, covering the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was sold by his brothers uh, at a very young age. Uh, not a very good thing to do to uh, a sibling. Um, glad my siblings didn't think to do that to me. Uh, so <laughs> obviously I'm the favorite. That's why I would say something like that. But uh, <laughs> I had to look at my sister when I said that too. So. <laughs> um, so, so Joseph is sold off into slavery. He spends uh, half of his life, uh, the better half of his life, uh, in, in bondage, effectively. He's uh, with this guy Potiphar quite, quite some years. He's in jail for quite some years. And finally, he, he goes from being in shackles one morning. He wakes up, he's, he's in chains. And by that night, Pharaoh makes him second in command of the entire, all of Pharaoh, all of Egypt. Now, it's been a while, uh, so he's... Providentially, Joseph has, uh, was able to know God's plan, and his plan was to set a, a seven years of great abundance and then seven years of famine. And because Joseph has given special insight to this and he's given this great authority, he, you see he's personally involved in helping the storehouses and helping store all this grain so that people will survive this famine. Uh, what he doesn't know, and what maybe he uh, comes to realize that, hey, that this this is all working according to how God initially came to him in a dream to begin with. Uh, if you remember back that Joseph had a dream that his brothers would all bow to him. Last week, only uh, it was partially fulfilled. Benjamin wasn't there. Uh, so 10 of the brothers were there, not the full 11, um, and they bowed down to him. So Joseph kind of makes this deal with them and says, you know what, you're spies. I don't trust you, you're spies. And he knows who exactly who they are. Uh, Joseph seems to be playing this game of false pretenses. They don't recognize him. He doesn't look like him. Uh, he looks just like the Egyptians do. He's shaved. He's clean. He doesn't have that Hebrew look about him. He's probably wearing a pointy hat like the Egyptians do. And uh, he basically he, he sets up what, what I believe is a test. He wants to know if these brothers have changed. They basically came in here and they're like, yeah, one brother's no more. He's dead. At least that's what they keep telling him. The ironic thing is he's not dead. He's standing right there in front of them. Uh, and he's, he wants to know, do these guys care about Benjamin or do they want to see Benjamin gone? Because Joseph kind of has already schemed out in his mind, you know, with him out of the picture, Benjamin probably became the elevated ch uh, child now in, in Jacob's life, the favorite, so to speak. And now, are these guys still jealous? Do they want to do to Benjamin what they did to him? He wants to know, have they changed? Do they have the same heart and mind? So they go back. Uh, they get down to Egypt. They get this food. They go back. Simeon is taken prison. Uh, he's taken bound before them in their, in their eyes. Uh, they watch him go off into prison. And they go back and they tell their father, hey, we've got to come back down there to get more food. Uh, but we've got to take Benjamin with us because he thinks we're spies. Um, and by the way, he's got Simeon. And Jacob reacts horribly to this news. And this is where we ended last week. Jacob's like, no way, no how. You're not taking Benjamin back there. Um, we'll, we'll die. It's kind of almost like Jacob's stance. He's like, we're just not going to do that. Reuben even goes to the point and says, look, trust me. You can, have my, you can kill off my two kids if we don't bring Benjamin back. And Jacob's like, no, you're not going. And that's how it ends. Kind of a desperate, horrible, hopeless place. And uh, some questions kind of prime us up a, or a little teed up a little bit. Things that you might want to ask yourself, that I, things I was asking myself 
uh, when I was going through this plight and trying to think about how Jacob must have felt, uh, I asked myself, have you ever felt desperate or hopeless? Because I think that's where this guy was. I think Jacob was really just at the end of his rope, very desperate, very hopeless. Uh, Have you ever felt like everything was against you? We heard Jacob use those exact words. He's like, the world is against me. Everything is against me, is what he said. Um, Have you ever felt like nothing was really in his control? And clearly, nothing is in this guy's control. Everything is happening outside of him. You don't think Jacob probably prayed for relief? When his sons came back and he had that food, and he, he probably prayed several times, God, just break the famine. Like, make this famine go away. So the circumstances look dire. And probably we've all had circumstances in our life that we can relate, where things were kind of out of our control. We probably prayed really hard, and probably things didn't get answered according to the way that we thought they should have gotten answered. And as a result, you get to this other place where you say to yourself, I feel like God's abandoned me. I don't feel like he's there. Well, how do you deal with these places in your life? This is a very dark place that Jacob's reached and arrived to. How do you deal with it? Well, fortunately, we have the scripture, and we can kind of find out how he dealt with it. So it starts off in Genesis 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more. Well, there's a problem with that. Now the famine was still severe in the land. We don't know how far into the story or how far into the seven years we are, but we know at this point Like, whatever food that they had brought back, they pretty much used almost all of it up to the point where he's saying, why don't you go get us some more food? Now, what's wrong with that statement? Well, Judah's going to have an exception to say this. He says, but Judah said to him, "Uh, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Notice who's doing it this time. Last chapter, it was Reuben who was making these overtures that saying, hey, it's going to happen. I'll take the blame. You can bear it on my shoulders. Reuben is the oldest child, and in some ways, I think he felt probably the most responsible for what had happened to Joseph even uh, when, when he was sold off. But now you see Judah is emerging. In fact, throughout this chapter, Reuben's never even mentioned. The next chapter, Reuben's not even mentioned there either. But what you see is Judah is kind of being this prominent figure throughout here. Now, remind, let me remind you a little bit about who Judah is. Uh, Judah is the lineage of what Christ comes out of. And he's not the firstborn, he's the fourthborn. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about Judah, when we first kind of hear about Judah and the kind of character and the kind of person he is, his first son, he gives a Hebrew name. His next two sons, he gives Canaanite names. His first son is really wicked and evil and dies because the Lord said he's wicked and evil. Uh, that wife of his first son, Tamar, has no kids, so she's supposed to keep marrying on to the next kid. That's kind of the custom. Well, he doesn't do that. He's not a man of his word. Judah does not. When his youngest son becomes of age, Tamar tricks Judah into sleeping with him, and then Judah has two kids, and uh, Judah has all the right in the world to kill Tamar for this, but when he finds out that it was him, that he's the father, he's like, wow, she's more righteous than me. So this experience, it's, it's kind of a strange story. It's kind of lumped in the middle of this, and Judah and Joseph's story are intertwined ever since that 
Uh, and now we see this intertwining kind of coming to fruition to some extent. Judah is now a changed person, is what I contend. And you can see it throughout this story in the way he reacts to all the things, and the way he keeps defending. So he tells his dad, point blank, look, we're not going back there. We told you how we would go back there would be with your youngest son, Benjamin. You said no. And now you're saying go back there? We're still not going to do it. That's what Judah says. So what does Israel or Jacob say? He says, why did you bring this trouble on me? And telling him the man that you had another brother. In other words, Jacob's just thinking to himself like, man, if you'd just been quiet down there, he'd have never known. You just would still be getting food. Uh, and they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is, our, is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have a brother? Uh, we simply answered his questions. How are we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. So they're defending themselves. You can see this. This is probably an argument that they probably had on more than one occasion, I'm guessing. And it probably got very heated between dad and kid. Notice it said in uh, 7, it says, they replied. So you'll, every once in a while you'll see it. It's Judah said something specifically, and then every once in a while it's like all the brothers are kind of getting in on the action and arguing with dad. So they, uh, then Judah said, notice again, Judah, prominent there. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, he said, send the boy along with me and we will go at once uh, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you, and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone there and returned twice. Um, the obvious thing that Judah's pointing out, he says, hey, let me go so that we may live and not die. This is how the previous chapter had, was as well. Israel was the one that pointed them to Egypt in the first place. Now Egypt seems to be this thorn in, in Israel's side. He knows that's where the food is. He knows there's this condition now. He's pretty much written off Simeon. Poor Simeon's never even mentioned here. It's like, what about that son? He, did he not love him too? But he's not even mentioned. Um, so Judah says, I know how to get life, and I know how we can live, but you got to do this thing for me. you got to let go of that favorite son. Um, and then Judah goes, and he goes a step further, and he says, you know what? I guarantee his safety. He says, all my life, I will bear the weight of this if it doesn't go right. So, and he even, I don't know if this is an exaggeration or if this is just the, the extent of the amount of time that has gone by. He says, we could have gone there and returned twice. If you recall, this is not a, like, just down the street at, like, the Walmart. This is, like, a 300-mile journey uh, with camels and whatever... Uh, uh, beast of burden that they could do to go that trip. This is a week's long journey to go down to Egypt and come back. So they've already made one trip down there and one trip back and had, you know, survived it. Now they've eaten a lot of food to the point where they're like, they're going to get hungry really soon. And now he's saying, we could have been there two times in the time it took you. Could be exaggeration, could be he's just saying this as an emphasis, or it could be that they were really there a long time, waiting this thing out as long as possible. So then the father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the, to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices, some myrrh, some pistachio nuts, some almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for, uh, for you must return the silver that was put back in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go 
back to the man at once. Uh, interesting that, you know, this is kind of Israel or Jacob's way. Uh, when he was tested with his brother and he had to go face Esau, who he thought was going to kill him, uh, what does he do? He sends lots of gifts ahead of time. Now, gifts are probably getting pretty scarce at this point, especially these pistachio nuts and these spices and myrrh and honey. Uh, even though they are in, supposedly in the promised land, they're experiencing a famine. And there's probably very little, if anything, to give as gifts. But what little he has, he's trying to ensure their safety. Again, I think, in my opinion, this is kind of this uh, way of misplaced trust. That he really doesn't, he's not leaning on the God in his time of turmoil. He's, it's, it's very tragic when we see Israel uh, or Jacob always leaning on ways that things of the world, if you will, to conduct and operate. I mean, we're all broken. We're all operating from a broken state. But to really just do everything that the world does the, and, and look like the world and not put any trust and faith, I mean, he's trying to control the situation again by his own human standards. And by all means, we do this too, right? We wish we could control every situation. He's now at the point of desperation, and now he's acting this way. He says, and now go at once. I find it interesting. You see, like, Judah saying, hey, we could have been there twice. And now, all of a sudden, there's a sense of urgency here that Jacob's at the point where, like, hey, there's really just got to be almost no food here. Like, he, he probably held out to the very bitter end, the very last little kernel, before he's like, okay, take Benjamin, go on down. Now he's willing to risk Benjamin. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, it seems like there's a sense of urgency that wasn't there before. And then he says this little statement, which I think is kind of ironic. He says, And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your brother uh, and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So first off, this is the first kind of like, he, he, we don't hear him invoke the name of God at all until now. And now, think about it. Look at how desperate of a moment he's in. Like, things have had, had to get so bad before he's invoked the name of God. Like, he could have been saying these wonderful overtones of faith to his sons well before he got to this moment. He could have been like, you know what? I trust God. If you take my son down there, if, if he takes my son, he takes my son. If he doesn't, I trust God in the end of the day. But that's not the story that you, or those are not the words that you hear out of Jacob's lips. You finally hear out of an act of desperation and an act of like, I've got nothing else left. If I don't go, we're going to die. I know that for sure, that, we are, that the bread is running out on the table. We're all going to die. So now he says to God Almighty, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I almost feel like if I were to like unpack this a little bit, it's almost like he finally let go. And said, you know what, God, I got no other choice but to trust you at this point. No choice at all. Keep in mind he is delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. He's put God off. He's put God off. And you know what? When you do that, there's consequences. When you delay what God's trying to do through you, there, at the end of the story, I'm going to spoiler alert, right? Everybody knows how this ends. At the end of the day, he gets reunited with Joseph. Think about how much sooner he got a, could have gotten reunited with Joseph had he just sent kids down there sooner. Had he just said, you know what, I trust God. I'll, I'll let go. I won't, I won't get myself to the point where like, I have no choice but to trust God. But that's where it feels like he's at. Like he's at the end of his rope. He has no choice but, well, I've tried everything else. 
I might as well put faith in God. I mean, what else can I do? You know, I got nothing else to lose. Might as well trust God. Like, that's, that's not the place you want to be. You want to trust God before the devastation, before the tragedy, before the things get out of control. Know with confidence that you can trust God in all situations, no matter where it is, no matter what the time. And the chances are he might not have delayed, and he might have had a reunion with his son way sooner than this waiting period that he imposed on himself because he felt like, I really, I really just can't trust, I can't give up my son. But in the end, he gave up his son to do this. So the men took the gifts, doubled the amount of silver, Benjamin also, they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. Now, when Joseph saw Benjamin with, with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house and slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. Notice the little subtle thing. When Joseph saw Benjamin, that's when they get an invitation to the house. Notice they were showing up at the storehouse, the Walmart. The local public is there. Like, everybody's buying their goods there. But when Joseph saw his brothers and he saw Benjamin there, the story, the narrative changes slightly here. He says, you know what? We're going to have a meal. We're gonna... Now it became personal. He's inviting them to his house. Again, kind of an interesting twist here. Uh, I tend to wonder, like, did Joseph have other plans? Like, what if he didn't see Benjamin? What kind of harshness, what kind of trouble would these boys have been in? Had they showed up without that boy? Woo-hoo! Joseph would have had a plan B for him. I bet. I, I don't know what it would have been, but more testing, I'm sure. More delays. More not getting where they needed to be. So the man did as Joseph told him. He took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house, and they thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our, into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. Notice, again, the dominant thing here in their life, they're not living by faith, they're living by what? Fear. When you live by fear, you will leap to all kinds of wild conclusions that just aren't so, won't you? This is not who we should be. We should be people living by faith. The one we fear is God. We don't fear man. What can man do us? If we've got God, if we put our trust in him, it really doesn't matter what this world brings on us, does it? It matters most what God already thinks of us and his relationship to us should matter more. It should supersede anything, any circumstance that we have. But yet these guys, they're getting invited to his house. And somehow that means death or slavery for them. It's an interesting conjecture that they made. So they went up to Joseph Stewart, and they spoke to him at once at the entrance of the house. He says, we beg your pardon, our Lord. They said, we came down here in the first time to buy food, but at that place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. Uh, we have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. So they go to the steward, possibly because they're thinking, hey, if we just butter up the steward, because the steward is actually the one that did pack their sacks, so maybe they're just trying to misclear this understanding right away. Um, maybe they're just trying to get him on their side uh, for whatever reason. 
Um, and the steward says this. He says, it's all right. He said, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I've received your silver. It's a very interesting turn of events for them. They're thinking they're in trouble. They're frightened. They're scared. And the guy's like, hey, 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 hey calm down. It's all right. You know, your God, the God of your father. Notice this attendant, this Egyptian servant, seems to know more about their God than they do. That's a scary thought, isn't it? You ever meet somebody that seems to know more about your faith than you do? That's a scary position to be in. Um, Either way, he says, it's all right. And technically, he didn't lie. He says, you know what? I I received your silver. He did actually receive the silver. He just happened to put it back in their sacks for them. But he says it in this way, in such a way that for them to think, hey, God just magically put it back in their sacks, or somehow that God magically gave them silver, that he also had silver. And he kind of left it there for them to interpret in their minds, either way. So uh, then, after all this is over, then they're getting ready kind of for, I guess, a, a lunch, an afternoon lunch. Then they bring Simeon out to them. First time this guy's mentioned. Again, like, I find it odd when I read through this. Like, Simeon is just as much of a, an important son as I would think as any of the rest of them, but yet there seems to be very little regard or, or very much about him. And all of a sudden, now all of a sudden he comes back. Now all the brothers are together. Got 11 brothers finally, the complete set. And now you got Joseph there, even completer set. The steward took the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and washed their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts uh, for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. So here we are. It's, they're getting ready for high noon. A little, it almost sounds like a western's about to happen here. Um, they, they are given, I guess, the, the provisions because they've been traveling. Keep in mind, it's been a long journey. They got there. Uh, they're giving uh, their, their animals are kind of getting the, their their provisions for their animals, and these guys are kind of, they're bringing out their gifts. They're getting ready. They're, they're, they're going to impress Joseph here, is, is the thought. So when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground, and he asked them how they were. And he said, how is that your aged father you told me about, is he still living? A couple interesting things here. Now you finally have the dream being fulfilled. Remember, when, when Joseph had the dream, he had a dream of 11 stars and 11 bales of wheat. They all bowed down to him. The first time they came down here, they bowed down to him. Wasn't the complete set, though. Now they got the complete set. God's providential dream being fulfilled right here in this moment. Then he says, is your father still alive? This seems to indicate, back to my suspicion again, that, again, they waited till the last possible moment to the point where they were so desperate that they had to come back to Egypt to get food. Because at this point, like, it sounds like Joseph, he had asked this question before, and he was alive the last time they were down there. Now they leave, they come back. There must have been a huge period of time that had to transpire that he had to ask the question again. Because the thought is, he was already pretty old. He could have possibly passed in the time that it took for them to get back. So, again, the time and the delay... All seems to indicate that they just dragged their feet out as much as they possibly could. So they replied, your servant, your, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down. Now, I don't know if this was a second bow down or if they were already kind of in a prostrated position, but uh, they're, they're still completing scripture here. 
So verse 29, he says, As he looked about and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, uh, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brothers, Joseph hurried out and he looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself, uh, said, serve the food. Um, God be gracious to you, my son. That's the, that's the word on the street that he has for this young boy. I can't imagine the emotions that he must be welled up with. Didn't really know for sure sometimes that this was going to happen. I'm sure at times when he was in a jail, he maybe doubted that these things were actually going to be fulfilled. Now he's seeing God on full display, showing his power and authority and how to line up events. And Joseph is witnessing this, and he's probably doing everything he can to hold back the emotion of this joy that he has in the fact that, hey, it's all come about just as God has said. You know, this is an amazing, amazing moment for him. So they uh, served him by, by himself. The brothers took, uh, were by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with, with him by themselves, uh, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is a detestable to Egyptians. The man had, had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them uh, from Joseph's tables, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with them. Now, imagine this. They come in. It's high noon. Uh, they're finally going to they give their gifts, uh, presumably somewhere in this. Um, and there's three tables set up. There's a table for the Egyptians because they won't eat with the Hebrews. There's a table for the Hebrews. And then there's a table for Joseph by himself. Uh, I don't know if that's because Joseph had a high position and just nobody sits with the high position guy, or is it because the Egyptians, they still knew at heart that Joseph was actually still a Hebrew, so they wouldn't sit with him either, or whatever. But it's kind of this awkward stage set up. Three different places, they're all set up. Uh, now, here's the thing that kind of is kind of eye-popping, at least it should have been, to the brothers. Um, they're all seated according to their ages, from oldest to youngest. Now, this should have been a clue. There should have been some hindsight here, but they were astonished by it nonetheless. Now, what, what did they give credit to? What, how did they, like, what was the conjecture? We don't know. They, they, surely they probably talked about it at the table. We know at least they were astonished by this. This is like a one in a 40 million shot. If you've got 10 brothers, they walk into the room, and for you to guess all their ages and set them up, like, it's not an easy task. But yet, somehow, this is done. And then Benjamin sits down, and he's got five slices of pizza, everybody else has got one slice of pizza, right? Or maybe it's bigger, bigger portions of that. Maybe he's got like, you know, five boxes of pizza sitting in front of him, and all the other brothers got one box of pizza a piece sitting in front of him. Regardless, it's noticeable that he's got five times the amount that anybody else has got to the point where it's seen here. Now, what is Joseph up to? Again, trying to maybe see if the boys get jealous again. If there's some kind of envy, if there's some kind of... It's a test again, right? So Joseph wants to see how this plays out. So now Joseph gave these instructions to the stewards. So there must not have been enough going on in that dinner and that meal for Joseph to feel like the test was complete. Because it continues on in Genesis 44. There's more testing yet that Joseph has in his mind. 
So now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. He says, fill the men's sack with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in, in the mouth of his sack. We've seen this story before, right? Now there's a little extra added here. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he uh, did so, as Joseph said. Uh, so his cup, kind of an indication of where things are going to go. Uh, as morning dawned, the men were sent to, on their way and their donkeys, and they had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and all uses for his divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. So everybody in every culture kind of has a sense of like injustice, right? If you've done something nice to somebody, you don't expect something bad in return. This is just a pretense. This is like everybody knows this to be true. Now, granted, this is a very contrived false pretense because Joseph set them up for this. Now, let's see how this plays out. Uh, when he caught up with them, he repeated the words that he had just said to them, basically. Uh, and, but they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from uh, your servants to do anything like that. We have even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of the sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become your Lord's slaves. Wow. Why does somebody always have to die? I don't understand. Like, they go to the extremes right away. Um, so die and slaves is where they put it. Uh, now, this is kind of an interesting little tidbit, the fact that when Joseph was sold into slavery, it was for 20 pieces of silver. Now, 10 came down for 10 pieces of silver. They've gone back. They've come back. Guess what? They brought another 10. There's 20. 20 units of silver, effectively. The price in which Joseph was paid for is now what's back in their sacks again. Now there's this added thing called the cup that's in there. And these guys, they're, they're very confident, I would say, that they don't have it. I, and it surprises me that they're this confident because they already know from the last trip down that their sacks were full of silver. And my guess is, like, why wouldn't one of you at least open your sack again and see if it happened again? Like, if you got out of the city, I'd be checking that. Be like, hey, silver's back again. Like, I wouldn't have let this, like, but yet they didn't. They walk out of the city, and now they're getting accused of this. And the bravado of here, like, hey, we didn't do this. And it says they. It didn't say Judah. It just says they. They're all kind of up in arms that are all very, like, we didn't do this, and if they, somebody did it, they can die. Uh, man, why is somebody going to die? I don't know. Uh, so the servant says, very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Granted, he didn't, he didn't give him exactly what he said. It says, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. So he changes the terms and conditions. Because <laughs> after all, the steward does it. He knows, he's probably uh, aware that this is not exactly what, what Joseph wants. Uh, so <laughs> he like backs him down from dying a little bit. Uh, so they, the one person will be a slave and the rest of them will be free. Now, if this actually played out, it'd be very interesting, right? Uh, each of them quickly lowered a sack to the ground and opened it. Uh, then the steward proceeded to search, beginning from the oldest and ending in the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes and then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. I can't imagine the walk back. 
<laughs> like, can you? Like, they must have felt like a bunch of whipped puppies or something just coming back into that city. Like, I can't believe this. And like, so this is a Hebrew thing. They tore their clothes. This is something they would do uh, when bad news happens or when, uh, when somebody dies. They would put ashes on their head and they would tear their clothes. It was a sign of grief. It was a sign of like, this is really bad and we're very troubled. So all of them tore their clothes. So Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves on the ground before them. Joseph said to them, what is it you have done? Don't you know that I am uh, a man like me can find things out by divination? I will just notice, like, some of you probably, like, hung up on that word divination. I doubt very much that Joseph used this cup to do divination. I, again, I think this is all false pretense. Um, Keeping also in mind that part of Scripture where divination is even mentioned hasn't even been written yet in Scripture yet. Um, but regardless, I don't think he's actually practicing that. I think it's all part of the show again. Um, so now we see uh, an interesting distinction starting to happen again. It says, when they return to the house, it says Judah and his brothers. Why does it not say Reuben and his brothers? Why doesn't it say anything, any of the other brother's name? But Judah's, again, being singled out and distinguished here. Because Judah rises to the occasion. He says, uh, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. He says, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord, slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. Notice the confidence is gone. The air has kind of been let out of the tire at this point. Um, they're not trying to explain away what has happened either. Judah, is, it's, it's almost like he is taking full weight and responsibility. Granted, this was a contrived situation. It was all false pretenses, but Judah's not even, he's trying, not even going to go there. He's not even going to try to defend from that position. He's just going to say, hey, we're guilty. I deserve whatever you're going to give to me. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found with the cup uh, will become my slave. The rest of you, you can go back to your father in peace. You know, like, how could he, like, get these words out even without, like, things blowing up? So then Judah went up to him, and he said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a, a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born in him uh, in his old age. His brother is dead. And he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Now, he's not telling, Judah's not telling him he didn't, anything he doesn't already know. He's just reminding him, again, of how the story unfolded. Um, and he, again, he puts in that detail, yeah, his brother's dead. Ironically, his brother is not dead, and he's standing right there in his face. He just doesn't know it. Um, then you said to your, uh, your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father if he leaves him. His father will die. Again, always somebody's got to die. Uh, but you told your servants, unless your, your youngest brother comes down with you, uh, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Uh, then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if your youngest brother is with us and we will go. We cannot see this man's face unless your youngest brother is with us. Again, he's emphasizing this relationship between Benjamin and the father. He says, the father's just going to die if something happens to Benjamin. So he continues on his defense. He says, your servant, my father, said to us, 
You know uh, that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and, and I said, uh, he has surely been torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. If you take his, this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Again, he's emphasizing misery, life, but notice this is a different Judah. This is not the same Judah that wouldn't give his youngest son to Tamar anymore. This guy is like, he's taking responsibility for what's happened here. He's kind of being a man about it and saying, you know what? Whatever punishment you have for him, put it on me. It's very sacrificial is what's happening here. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. So this is the final test. I'm actually going to leave it again here, uh, chapter 41. <laughs> we still don't have the great reveal. We're all, like building up to this anticipation. Next week, we're starting with the reveal, okay? So <laughs> this is how it's going to end. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions about what's going on in the story. Things that I think that are kind of pointing out my, my face when I read it. It says, have you fallen into the trap of imagining things are worse than what they really are? I think oftentimes we let our situations dictate and let our, our imaginations run wild, and we, we fear things that we quite frankly shouldn't fear, uh, where we should be putting faith in God. Are you willing to let, let it go into God's hands? Simply trust Him. Why don't we get there sooner than later? You have a choice today. Maybe you got a situation that is way out of your control, and you know it's out of your control. Make the choice today to put your trust in Him. Do you face tests with fear or faith? Which is the most dominant thing in your life right now? Is it fear or is it faith? And I'll close with this. Is God worth giving up everything for? Now, Israel wanted to hold on to his youngest son because it meant the world to him. There was nothing more precious to him than that son, and he didn't want to let it go. But in the end, he had, it was kind of dictated. It was out of his hands. He had, he had no choice, effectively, but to just, hey, it, God, it's in your hands. That's not really the best expression of faith, in my opinion. What would be a better expression of faith is to say, you know, Jesus, you're worthy because you're worthy. Think about this. When God took the most precious thing that he had, and he looked at us, he said, you're worth it. He sent his son to be on this earth to pay the ultimate price for our sin, and he said, you're worth it. God didn't mince words. He didn't, you know, hem and haul. He didn't, like, he knew that we were worth the prize. Knowing that God was willing to look at us that way and say, you're worth it, are we willing to reciprocate that and look to God and say, you know, you're kind of worth it then. I want to enter into a relationship with you. The fact that you would love me that much, 
that you found me that valuable, I would say to myself, you're worth worshiping and adoring and to being in a relationship with, with trusting all my life to. That's the point where God wants us to come. It's the point of all this whole story. This is the point of the scripture. It's for us to get to that point to where we say, I can trust God. He's worth trusting. He's proven himself. And even if he doesn't do things according to my agenda, I'm still going to live for him. That's the end of the, that's, that's the ideal situation. There's no need to wait. Israel, Jacob, he waited. He delayed. And he didn't get all these good reunion time with his son Joseph. He could have been with him sooner had he not waited. Had he acted out in faith from the get-go, how things could have been different. Maybe you have not acted out in faith in your life and things have not gone according. In fact, it's, it's like you're playing tug-of-war with God right now. Stop playing tug-of-war with him. Just say, you know what, God, it's under your control. I acknowledge it today. I am going to put my trust in you. No matter what happens, I'm putting my trust in you because I know your ways are better than my ways. I know your, the way you want it to turn out is going to be way far better than anything I could have imagined anyhow. Don't delay on that choice. Trust him today. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you didn't delay when it came to saving us. God, that you, you got involved very personally. You uh, came down to this world and, and laid it all out for us. God, you took away uh, the, our sins, our offenses, that we might have a relationship with you. God, you, just like Judah, was willing to sacrifice himself uh, on behalf of the Father, that, that the Father might continue in relationship. God, you sacrificed your Son that we might be in relationship with you. God, it's a beautiful thing. And I pray that we would, not, uh, we would not forget how great of a thing that is for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.